This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a Tuesday morning edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined by a first-timer down there, and I'm not even going to re-pronounce this name, because I know I'm going to mess this up, Dear Florida, it's Ben Wagner, play-by-play voice of the Toronto Blue Jays. Ben, good morning, sir. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, we were just talking. I'm, I'm ready. I think... Something that was very nice of the the weather gods uh, was to drop some snow uh, in Knoxville this morning, so I could really get in the mood to talk some Blue Jays this morning to get ready to talk well, some can- Canadian baseball. Yeah, I mean it's like the perfect backdrop for a hot stove, right? Mm-hmm. The calendar moves into December. You start to think about winter meetings. You start to think about what a ball club could start to uh, improve or maybe detract from, depending on your rooting interests. And and here you go. You've got a little you've got a little white stuff on the ground, and uh, it's it's the perfect setting, I think, as you, you you crank up the stove and get ready for the new year. I'm embarrassed to admit this, and thankfully this is not a uh, a Zoom video podcast, Ben, because I am in my cardigan at the moment with my coffee, and I have a heated blanket over me at the moment because I am not the the biggest man, and this is quite cold and uh it is quite cold in my house this morning so i am quite cozy as well it, it it's just all i think i'm just like an 85 year old woman at this point we were talking about when you moved to florida that uh you're uh you're just you you get cold a lot easier your blood changes so oh, i yeah. think that's what's happening oh, yeah. here oh yeah except i'm always this been is, a southerner <laughs> You're you're authoring your own expose here, admitting that you're using a heated blanket yes. while you sit in Tennessee. But I but I feel you. I mean, I'm wearing uh, I'm wearing a sweatshirt and long pants, which for a guy that got acclimated very very quickly to Florida life, mm-hmm. um, this is this is way too much for me to be wearing on a cold front day here in Florida. But uh, as you as you alluded to, you're right. I did admit. My blood got very, very thin very, very quickly after you know growing up in the Midwest and then living in New England. And then uh, obviously the bulk of my career has been spent to this point in Buffalo, New York, where we had a home year round for 12 years. And uh, it felt like winter for the majority of a baseball season at times as well in Buffalo. So uh, very, very happy to head north or head, head north with the Blue Jays when it's that time, but also live south. There is not enough money in this world for you to pay me to live in Buffalo, New York, 12, 12 months a year. I couldn't do it. At six feet, 140, uh, I'm pretty sure it would kill me. I'm pretty sure I'd just be dead, Ben. We'd have to thaw you out come yes, uh, opening 100%. day. I understand. I understand <laughs> these pains. I really do. Yeah. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Um, ben, the first thing I want to ask you about with this Blue Jays team, um, what is it? What did the. What is the. 
offseason look like for you this year and how does it compare to previous years? I think the level of expectations has been raised uh, and you have to go back to last year first, you know, right before the Christmas holiday and the new year when they signed Hinge and Ryu. One, in the level of money committed by the ownership group and by the Blue Jays overall, plus the fact that the years that they gave to Hinge and Ryu raised the stakes on the caliber of pitcher that he is, but he also, with that contract, sent ripple effects to agents and other free agents that are on the market. And with what that did and then what this team was able to do, and I'm going back to February, there was a, an era of belief that kind of surprised me with the young core and with some of the older guys as well at the same time. But then with the shutdown and out of the shutdown, the expanded playoffs, the Blue Jays are looking around saying, well, we're good enough to do this. Let's try to make something special. And you know what? For not, not necessarily the start and certainly not the finish of the regular season, the Blue Jays in the, in the middle of that, had a great chunk of baseball where they were playing some of the, the most exciting kind of baseball that was happening in, in big league baseball against a lot of the, the top tier teams. Uh, when you had to battle in this shortened COVID season against AL East or National League East, and that you know that had a swagger with a with a lot of the young guys and the emergence of a couple others. The, the year that Fernando Martinez or <laughs> excuse me. Um, uh, Teoscar Hernandez had mm. had to shift gears. They almost said Fernando Martinez, which is going back to my Buffalo days <laughs> in the Mets. Um, but you, you, you know who? Um, when you had Teoscar Hernandez out there, you had Rowdy Telez performing at an incredible level and, and really starting to break out before both of them were injured down the stretch. And the Blue Jays hardly missed a beat. You know, shortly after you had injuries, not only to those guys, but you played a huge chunk of time without Bo Bichette, who is an amazing talent, especially at the plate with what he was able to do at the start of the year. So uh, catastrophic injuries that didn't necessarily derail the entire thing. And you had a Blue Jays club that still looked like it was going to emerge as one of the more exciting contenders. And with that, you know, that, that again is a, is a catapult into this off season where things become much more exciting and it's easier for a front office to field calls versus make calls. And when you have the Blue Jays linked to some of the top-tier free agents that are excited about the brand of baseball that's being played in Toronto, that also has a lot of weight behind it. And, you know, the years may not be exciting. The dollars may not be where the DJ LeMayhews of the world and JT Realmutos of the world will actually end up. But the Blue Jays are in those conversations, and uh, it'll be really, really interesting to find out, you know, if if the ripple effects of all of this come through, and and also now you're you're banking on the future of what this team could be in the next two to three years, and you hope that they they keep moving forward because if you if you have a couple of missteps, you know, that can wreck an organization for two or three years at the same time. Do you think they're at all a little concerned about? just being four games over 500 and really kind of breaking out a little bit last year where now fans expectations have shifted a little bit too much too quickly. Well, I think the blue Jays clubhouse expectations have shifted immensely. Okay. Uh, you know, a fan base, a fan base should be really excited because mm-hmm. within the walls and the guys moving forward and they don't have a lot of money on the book uh, outside of Rio, 
this is an organization where their focus has shifted mm-hmm. and maybe accelerated uh, where they thought, you know, they could be competing and then contending in 2022, mm-hmm. maybe 2023, maybe really making a run because not, not only will you have perhaps the pieces in place, but the pieces are here in the core and position players to build around will be seasoned by that time. You know, you look at the Blue Jays. I mean, there's a handful of guys that they, they don't have 500 at bats, let alone a thousand at bats in the major leagues. It takes some time for, mm. for young players to cement themselves into the lineup and find out who they are, let alone perform, mm. you know, find out who they are, you know, are you a 230 hitter or are you going to be a 280 hitter? and drive in 90. Um, that's a, that's a really big question that is still to be answered for a lot of these young players. So, uh, if you could get a 162 season going or some semblance of, you know, really big chunk of a regular season, it'd be very interesting to see how, uh, this blue Jay club uses what it's learned over the last couple of years. Well, speaking of the 162 games and we already know the Raptors are going to be playing in Tampa, um, to start the season, what uh, what do you know about what's going to happen with the Blue Jays season once it once it starts next year? Very little, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. I I get the feeling that the Blue Jays would not like to play in Buffalo, especially at the start of the year. I think baseball overall overall is moving ahead with um, some tradition in in terms of its plan for spring training and then into a regular season and the hopes of one life getting back to normal a vaccine being part of that will only help baseball's cause, let alone the blue Jays. But you know, the border issue is is still going to be an issue. Everything that's approved in the United States necessarily doesn't mean that's going to be approved and, and welcomed from a Canadian perspective. And with what we have already, and you alluded to this, you know, the Raptors got blockaded much like the blue Jays did by the border and they would not relax the terms and conditions, modified quarantine or not. So the Blue Jays were watching that very, very closely. They were hoping by the new year, maybe a lax if things get back to normal. But as we sit here on the phone today and, and chat, things aren't moving in the right direction for sport, let alone the rest of humanity. Let's just be honest, you know, and controlling coronavirus. Um, and that is, that is a totally different approach. And I lived it for three months when we were calling Blue Jay games in Toronto. The, no matter where you are in the United States, there's a different sensitivity to COVID-19 mm. when you're north of the border and the reaction of it when you're north of the border in, in, in major metro areas. And one of the biggest is Toronto. So, um, you, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces, both on the political landscape, let alone the sports landscape, that will factor into when a launch button at some point for the Blue Jays gets pushed. But you know, talking with people in the organization, there is without question a long, long burning desire now for that ball club to take the field at Rogers Center. And, you know, you hope that you get to watch baseball live uh, in some capacity that way. I, again, go, circling back, you know, if, if baseball starts on time, I don't think Buffalo is going to be in the cards. Ideally, they would not like to have Dunedin in the cards either, but mm. um, this may be this may be the place, you know, where the Blue Jays land for the first couple of months and, and hopefully, you know, things continue to progress in, in terms of the border and obviously with the virus and, you know, you can get back to travel as normal and you can play the schedule as normal and hopefully have Rogers center be part of that normalcy too. Oh, well, I'm about to ask you about Rogers center. It's good that you brought that, uh, 
the the sky dome up um how what was the weirdest thing about covering the blue jays this year what was the weirdest thing you'll you'll remember back years from now well being in a studio for all 64 of our broadcasts <laughs> which yeah. a lot of my a lot of yeah, i mean a lot of my colleagues got at least to see half of the games played in front of them we never got that opportunity. Um, you know, our, our network made the decision very early on and they control a lot of properties and the NHL and obviously the Raptors as well. And there's no desire to cast their personnel into what they feel is um, unsafe environments. So, you know, not only did we not get allowed to travel with the Blue Jays and, and see anybody on the field roster, uh, let alone the coaches or any front, front office personnel live one-on-one, um, once it was time for us to do broadcasts, I went into a 10 by 10 room from our two exhibition games that started in Boston, the 60 game regular season, and then the two playoff games. So 64 broadcasts. I was looking at a, at a very nice size monitor that I would love to have mounted on the wall here in, in my home. Uh, but that, that was how I was relaying baseball on the radio to uh, a network in an entire country. And that, that to me will be one, what I'm going to take from it, but also the obstacles that come from it. And I also learned a little bit, you know, on how to use certain resources as well when so many things were taken away from us. Uh, there's nothing like watching uh, a sporting event that you're covering from my perspective live, but you just had to figure it out. And I refuse to use any excuses based on the mediums that we were provided. You know, I was going to do the best of my ability, knowing that at least from a sport and entertainment value, um, that's where people were coming to us. You know, they were looking for escape. They were looking to pass the time, whether they're mowing the yard or, uh, you know, sitting in traffic or just put their feet up on the patio in downtown Toronto. Uh, that, that to me will be, um, a point of pride, honestly, you know, that we were able to, to get through it and use, only very, very few hiccups uh, along the way, um, you know, that maybe have impeded our broadcast. But by and large, you know, the, the greatest compliment for us is the fact that people would say, man, you took me there. And it sounded like you were there. I had no idea you were in a Toronto studio versus, you know, being in Atlanta or Baltimore, or Boston, or, you know, whatever the the backdrop usually is. Um, and, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that. And like I said, a couple of, uh, a couple of tools along the way. And I will always be immensely thankful for the people that worked so hard behind the scenes from, you know, our sports net TV and radio networks to make sure we were as comfortable as possible trying to do our, get, do our job. What is, uh, what is the future of the Rogers center? We kind of had a, a bombshell that this, uh, they were looking to potentially tear it down and have a, new stadium uh perhaps on the waterfront in place by 2030 what do you know about that right now um just kind of what's been out there i know in the last couple of years there's been a very very deep dive into uh improving not only the quality of life for everybody that takes the field and that's improving the amenities for major league baseball standards in the clubhouse and the bowels of the rogers center uh the field of play not only that, you know, how do you compete and how do you stay as competitive as possible for the needs that players have in the offseason? That's why Dunedin is such an important piece. Improving the stadium here in Dunedin, uh, the, the player development complex, which is, um, I mean, it's going to be rivaled not only in baseball, but uh, in professional sport with 
what they were able to gather, put together, and then build here in Dunedin, Florida. It's one of the best training facilities for a professional athlete that you're going to find. And that's going with everything from a traditional weight rack to the sports science behind things. Um, but part of that now moving forward is, all right, they got a place to, to, to make sure their players are healthy and succeeding and going. Now what's the next step for the fan base? And improving all of those things from a player and coach and yeah, I'll be selfish, a media perspective, um, you have to improve the Rogers Center. And there are many things that you can love about the Rogers Center. Um, there are many things that, you know, you still stand in awe 30 years later uh, with that roof rolling back um, that's still so impressive and the CN Tower hovering above. But there are deficiencies on how you can improve that facility. And you know, the studies are what the studies are, and they look at the, the space that is available and the desire to stay downtown. Uh, from what I understand is they don't want to give up, you know, the, the current footprint in what the space is available right there in the core of Toronto. So that is you, you come up with creative ideas. And uh, one of the creative ideas is also to use an idea that's already been done in, in St. Louis and in Cincinnati, and they did it in Atlanta as well back in the mid-1990s, and that's to construct a stadium. And that looks like the best route for the Blue Jays, you know, to build a new facility. And it'll change. You know, it'll it'll obviously change. Um, but I think the days of Rogers Center as we know it are probably coming to an end, and a new facility will be constructed around that area. Um, but it's not going to be – it's not going to be a flip to such – flip the switch situation either uh, because there are so many things and hurdles to overcome from an infrastructure standpoint and from a political landscape standpoint too and 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 the funding that's going to be around it um i i don't want to say you know it won't be done in five years but i bet within 10 years it becomes becomes one of the new crown jewels of the game interesting um when we talk about the Jays and we talk about being ahead of schedule, we talk about the young talent that was breaking out. We even talk about Teoscar Hernandez having a really, really great 2020. Um, something that I've wondered about and if people in the organization were wondering about and when you're watching the games, if you were wondering about this, of what was kind of going on with Vlad Jr. Do you think he had kind of a disappointing 2020 was there anything that you saw that was kind of like huh that we did not he didn't have this kind of season we were expecting this year was there what what did you make of his season because it wasn't as uh i guess maybe perhaps it was not as dominant as maybe we were going to we, we were expecting is that fair vlad's expectations will never be reached uh i mean from a fan standpoint uh, from a media standpoint as well, yeah, there's a there's a thousand ways to slice this, but um, the expectations for who he is linked to in a Hall of Fame father, the splash that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. made, or Vladimir Guerrero Sr. Uh, made when he came up with the Expos, and and he was, I mean, he was highly touted too. So all of that raises expectations for Junior, and. You know, he had an okay debut. He had probably an underperforming season in in his mind and in a lot of ours. But you saw some flashes. You saw a lot of ability, and you saw a happy-go-lucky guy that wanted to continue to play the game. But he also realized, I think, more this year, even in the shortened season, that something had to change. Um, 
I, I don't know that looking back, you can use this as a litmus test for Vladdy either. The 60-game season, did he really have a chance to, to make the transition from third base to first base? He didn't play there, you know, more than two days straight. He was in the lineup consecutively, so the at-bats were important that he was getting, and, you know, read into that what you can and look at the numbers. Um, but defensively, I don't think we know where he's going to pan out yet. And now that he's changing his body and, uh, I live in Dunedin, Florida. And like I said, I, I saw him a month ago, uh, you're watching the transformation, which he's a young individual. Anyway, the body is going to continue to change as he matures into a man. Um, you can, you can help that along and he is, and there's a clear commitment to physical conditioning. Uh, now you just hope the the body changes translate to what he was three and four years ago when I thought he was at his best shape and best performance um, because we haven't seen that. And, and I'm going back to even 2019, 18, when he was in the, in the minor leagues, you know, we were not seeing the elite bat speed contact and drive of the baseball that we had seen from him prior in his career in the minor leagues. But again, that always goes back to raising the expectations. Um, and then in the next couple of months, we'll definitely get a better gauge on where he is physically and whether that's going to translate into those just sometimes unhuman skills that he possesses with bat speed power and all coming together uh, when he's a, a dynamite player at the plate. I don't know that he's ever going to be a gold glove defender, but um, he will only help himself in terms of the mobility and the challenges that playing elite Elite level defense is needed on where they're asking him to play uh, by continuing the track that he's on right now. If you had to place the order of who you think will develop into the biggest, like the highest ceiling of the three, who of BGO, of Bichette, and Vlad, how would you rank them in order based on what you've seen thus far in the major leagues? How would you forecast those three? And also, how would you for, how would you guess? the front office would forecast those three. Well, I think the highest ceiling goes back to Vlad because we, we don't know where he is yet and mm. the expectations that are there, you, you know, I, I, that, that to me is still the greatest unknown and there, mm. therein lies the ceiling. Right. And I, I don't think that it's a, a firm grasp on the ceiling too. I think it's kind of a, like a floating bobber it just yeah. keeps going up. Um, you know, we when you think about, the possibility that you've got for a guy that's 22 going to be 23 years of age. Uh, Kevin's a little bit more elevated in age. Um, he's but 25. He does everything right? that you would. Yeah. He's 25, 26 when we get into next season. Um, you know, and he's, he played college baseball at a, a very high level at Notre Dame. And he's obviously gone rung by rung succeeded in the minor leagues. Now this is major league baseball, but he never looks overmatched and he's got mm. one of the best eyes in the game. And he can do so many different things when he's on the field. Um, Bo Bichette continues to impress. And I think he's almost past the ceiling. Offensively, nobody expected Bo to perform the, the way that he has done, especially in the sample size that he has done. You, you saw flashes of it. You thought this is a really special guy. You know, he's playing above average defense. I don't know that he's going to pan out to be an everyday shortstop in the Blue Jays organization, let alone um, in major league baseball, but he's got some tools. There's no doubt about that. Um, if, if you were to ask me, where's the greatest ceiling, it's going to be Vlad. If you look at who may have 
the longer career, mm. I would say probably today it's Kevin Biggio, which may surprise some people. Mm. Um, but I look at how Bo plays the game and he plays hard. He plays with a little reckless abandon with his hair on fire, you know, diving into bases, uh, the plunges that he's got. And, you know, that takes a toll on the body. And we're starting to see, you know, some, some concerns with the injury. And, you know, you're always worried about knees, <laughs> knees and elbows, especially on your middle infielders. Uh, and he had a significant setback with the knee injury. Um, but the, the greatest question is like, how far is Bo going to push this line of success that he is on? Because when he's on the field, uh, we saw it last year and obviously a season cut short with a concussion this year, a season that was not played to its duration because of a knee injury. And, you know, down the stretch, even though he came back on the field, I, I can't, you can't say those last couple of weeks, you know, or Bo Bichette from where he was because the guy sat for way too long. Um, and, and to his own admission came back before he was ready to be back at 100%. So they're very interesting questions. They're obviously pillars of what is moving forward with this franchise, but it's all exciting because there's still so much to be determined with all three of them. Last thing on the Blue Jays offense. Um, Teoscar Hernandez, obviously the, the Blue Jays' best hitter this season. What did you see different with him that made him so so good this year? Was there anything that he talked about or – um, the managers talked about with him that kind of changed in 2020. Well, you know, he cut down on his strikeouts and that goes to an approach at the plate. Um, um and working with Bo's dad, Dante Bichette, who had a very large presence around the Blue Jays huh. going back to February and spring training. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's quite an interesting story with Dante and kind of as he has moved, uh, from behind the scenes, talking with one or two guys, to really connecting with a couple of other guys and having an impact on approach and also talking hitting and trying to translate that. Uh, we saw it early with Randall Gritchick, but that really tapered off. Uh, Teoscar Hernandez is somebody that overall became a much different hitter and the strikeouts went down, his production went up, you know, and you never saw those really long troughs with Teoscar this past season. That's why he was so successful. And the raw power is there. He, he is another person that has matured in the major leagues. He's been, he's been in the big leagues since 2017. Uh, and you were waiting on the breakout with the bat. And the power is there. The ability to drive the ball the opposite way really came to the forefront this year, let alone the drive and pull that he possesses. But his ability to just use the natural tools, his, his overall strength is unbelievable. He's a really strong guy. Uh, and looking at him, you, you saw it more this year. And, and obviously it translates to what he was able to do on the field. Robbie Ray now in the fold in Toronto. They need more. The starting pitching was the biggest, the biggest need going into this winter. Is that fair? Starting adding more starting pitching depth. Oh, for the last three years. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, um, over here. I'm seeing some sad yeah, stuff. Over, like bring back J.A. Happ. I, I, I'm seeing some bad stuff. Um, Charlie Morton was kind of in the mix, but um, thankfully, uh, my Atlanta Braves snuck in there and made sure to get him back in Atlanta. Um, what do you think is their game plan here? Do they want to keep developing in-house? Do they want to splurge and continue adding around Ryu? Like, what is the plan there? 
it's got to be a balance of both. Um, the Blue Jays right now have a couple of really top flight prospects that are percolating in the upper levels of the minor leagues. I don't think that they've got slam dunk prospects jumping into the rotation uh, right now. You've seen some guys blossom. You've seen some guys also get overexposed and the need to make some adjustments like Anthony Kay and Trent Thornton and those, those guys that are also relatively new to the organization, let alone Major League Baseball, but also new to the organization. Uh, and there's still a question mark in what do you have with Nate Pearson? You know, you expect him to be a frontline starter, but there was a there was a there was a big disconnect from where he had been dominant in the minor leagues the last couple of years to where we saw him perform and you know fight himself at times. Um, so what does that go back and say with Ross Stripling and Robbie Ray? Uh, you, you know you've got you got Tanner Roark in there with a bundle of money plus in Jeopardy. Uh. That's four, and you hope that you know you gotta <laughs> you gotta hope that uh, you, you know you find a fifth. And you find somebody to emerge to to plug and play because nobody's going through the the length of the season with only five or six guys in a rotation. The Blue Jays want guys that can go out there and take the ball every fifth day and not have to dive into spot starts and openers and do that. Teams do that because they don't have answers. The Blue Jays want to have answers. So they need to play in the free agency market. They have to have a balance of what do you do with the next one, two, three years? with guys that are available and guys that, you know, that, that look like they're going to not only continue to be part of a franchise, but also perform. You know, you, you get into a, you get into this bundle of people signing or people believing, you know, you sign the guy that was not what the guy is that, that can come. And I think Robbie Ray still got a lot um, left to show, especially over the last couple of years, you know, coming back from injury and he changed his body. He changed his arm angle. He wasn't the same guy last year. You know, he can be that guy again. Mm. And the Blue Jays think that they have something, and Robbie Ray comes back because of his relationship with Pete Walker and believes that he's got more in the tank too. So uh, there are some pieces in veteran status that you can build around, and we obviously know that the, the young crop that's there uh, can pitch at the major league level. You're just not sure if, if you needed small sample sizes right now. But the biggest question that's going to be out there is, is where is Nate Pearson going to fall into this? And is Nate Pearson going to be the breakout performer every fifth day that you would really hope that uh, you get moving into next year? True or false, James Paxson is a Toronto Blue Jay in 2021? False. Okay. Hmm. I wonder who it is. I think they're going to do something. I think I just get the sense they're going to get another veteran. They're going to get somebody else. I don't know who it is. If you had to guess, who is it? Uh, you know, I think uh, for me on the short list of guys, uh, Taiwan Walker seemed like he was really, really comfortable with yeah. the Blue Jays, but that's still TBD. Um, if if I said, I'm going to go out on a limb. I, I'm going to put Corey Kluber on that list. Okay. Uh, that, that's my pick. If, you know, he said, but give me a surprise name or maybe not an overall surprising name, but mm. give me a name that the Blue Jays go after and a guy that wants to be part of the Toronto Blue Jays in the next couple of years. Uh, put Corey Kluber on that list. Interesting. Um, not, not Trevor Bauer. No Trevor Bauer in Toronto. Uh, I don't know that the years in the money. Could I'm come so to where interested Trevor to Bauer see what he takes. 
Like I'm so interested if yeah. he does another one year. If he sticks he's to the one year thing. He's a fascinating guy. Yeah. He's a fascinating guy. You know, um what's important to Trevor Bauer is it and and anybody, anybody that goes into free agency, especially oh my god, a free agency right now would be a scary place to live. That's why you see guys, you know, taking taking the dollars and one year contracts. Um so what's important to Trevor Bauer? Is it comfort? Is it longevity and finding a place for the next handful of years in his life. I mean, we all, we always know that comfort financially is going to be part of it. Um, and the players association deserves every right with that. And any member of the players association, uh, deserves all of that. Uh, I really feel that Trevor Bauer is a unique individual and you know what, he may look at certain things and, and hear one or two things and think, this is where I want to go in the next three years or two years, because this is where I can make the biggest impact. Uh, I, of all the of all the free agents that are available, maybe in the modern game, this would be the most fascinating to watch and where it ends up, and and the level of commitment and then understanding and then what's relayed because of the decision that's made that'll come ultimately from Trevor Bauer. He's a fascinating guy. Yeah, um, I'm going to give you my pick. I'm going to give you my reel when I look at it and I think about. Who I could see pitching for the Blue Jays in a wild card game? Uh, they throw out there the the veteran that you just won the clubhouse. If you wanna you wanna get that those young guys moving in the right direction, you want Nate Pierce to move in the right direction. John Lester is just sitting there. What he would be cheap, one year deal, maybe two to get him to Toronto. I don't know. I could see John Lester. That's a wild card pick. I mean, I, I don't hate Lester. it. Uh, if if you if you get the familiarity <laughs> or, or, you know, the thorn in the, in the side of Blue Jay fans for so long as he was pitching through Boston, mm-hmm. uh, that would be, that would be, that would be awesome. Um, and you know, that, that comes with so many questions and how the, how the American league East will run. You know, you got aggressive teams now emerging in Boston. You got one with the Rays. Um, Huh, that'd be that's a fascinating one. That's that that got my gears grinding. Uh, you know, thinking about it, it's a good pick. I like that. There you go. Um, last thing, we'll wrap up here, Ben. Um, the biggest sure. storyline you're monitoring this offseason for Toronto. What is it? Um, well, it, it's multi layered because okay. they can do so many things. You know, they, free agency is definitely going to be one, but with free agency and then the trade block, the Blue Jays are in a really unique position of making decisions on players that are currently here and where they're at moving forward. So the biggest thing that I'm watching with the Blue Jays is, is who they decide moving forward will be part of this because there are some pieces out there. There are a number of places they can improve and they know they need to improve and they can do that by also saying, we're going to move this individual to another franchise because we can trade to upgrade in another particular area. Um, You know, can you go out, can you improve your outfield defense by signing a free agent? Uh, like George Springer, but then that has ripple effects because now perhaps you can take a Randall Gritchick, a Teoscar Hernandez, um, you know, a Lord, I think a Lourdes Coriel Jr. How, how do those guys fit into a package that may land you Francisco Lindor? 
Like there are just so many layers to how the Blue Jays can operate. And, and it's partly because one, where they are in terms of years and commitment and dollars, where their system overall is, uh, where they're at and the guys that kind of, kind of blossomed, I guess you could say, you know, Teoscar Hernandez had a blossoming season. Maybe he becomes more inviting to a particular suitor. Um, the depth at other organizations or other, other positions in the organization uh, factor into it as well. So this is a really, really interesting year to how the Blue Jays not only massage their, their roster, their organization overall for this year, but how it impacts then a ripple effect. Because I think this year you're definitely going to see if they make a move this year, free agency and in the trade block, this will have impact for two and three years. They, they, they definitely want to build with consistency and longevity in mind without just saying we're in it and only this year or the next year. Uh, I, I think that, I think that this off season could set the blue Jays up very, very uniquely for the next two and three. Interesting. Interesting. Ben, this has been great. Very informative. I appreciate you making the time this morning. Um, what would you like to uh, plug before you get out of here this morning? What would I like to plug? Oh, man, I, I plug nothing. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, you know, uh, the Blue Jays, the Blue Jays are obviously a very, very exciting and emerging team. Um, I think uh, with the way that the organization is going and even even now, while it's fun to track, this is this is definitely an interesting time for not only the guys that are there, but watch the Adam Kloppensteins behind the scenes, watch Nate Pearson. Uh, you can watch Simeon Woods Richardson. Uh, you got to pay attention to, to the next wave that's coming because that stockpile of pitching specifically is going to be a massive driver for this team moving forward. And it's definitely going to be uh, an exciting thing to watch for Blue Jays. There are Blue Jay fans that are, that are listening. Obviously you can get our, our radio call across the entire country. Um, and, you know, I've got the ability to work with some of the best, some of the best people in the game with Dan Schulman and Buck Martinez and uh, Joe Siddle and Pat Tabler. And, you know, those guys, great baseball guys. So um, not only will the team be fun to watch, but obviously we're going to have a lot of fun covering it. So uh, I really look forward to that. And I look forward to uh, seeing what happens here. So um, this is going to be a fun off season. I think we're going to see a lot of weird stuff and uh, hopefully um, not as chilly as the free agent market looks at the moment, but uh, fingers crossed and uh, we get a full season. Ben, stay safe out there. Um, Thank you so much for the time and we'll have to check back in soon. Sounds great. Reach out anytime and I hope you stay warm, Chase. Oh man, we're back and it's Tuesday and that means it's Jonathan Taylor Thomas talks Major League Baseball Baltimore Orioles season in review edition of the podcast. John Taylor of the Fangraphs is here as he is every week. John, good afternoon, sir. How demoralized are you to to spend some time talking about the uh, the Baltimore Orioles this afternoon with me? 
Honestly, not that demoralized because they were. I mean, like, I, I, if I remember correctly, when we were when we talked about the Orioles before the season started, before the actual season started, we we both just kind of like laughingly dismissed them as like, yeah, they're going to be awful. Because in a sixty-game season with an unbalanced schedule where they had to face the Rays and the Yankees twenty times, it was pretty easy to to like imagine them just going like twelve and and forty-eight or whatever. They were actually well, they weren't good. But they weren't that bad, you know? Yeah. They honestly weren't that bad. They were 25 and 35, and by Pythagorean record, they were better. They were 28 and 32. You know, they scored almost as many runs as they allowed. Still gave up a lot of runs, but at the same time, like, this team could actually hit a little bit. They Uh, were in the playoff chase for the majority of the season. Yeah, and, like, they were, I think the most important thing, and we'll, we'll get into this, I think, once we go through the players and through kind of the roster itself, is, regardless of what the Orioles did or didn't accomplish in terms of record, because honestly it didn't matter. Like no one, the, the Orioles, the Orioles could have finished last. They could have finished first. It wouldn't have made a damn difference. You know, as is the case of a lot of baseball teams, what actually happens on the field or at least what happens with regards to the record doesn't matter. But what I think is important is that they, they actually learned or figured out like, Hey, here are some guys who are actually going to be useful going forward. They they kind of reach I think if stage one of a rebuild is you burn everything down, and you just kind of start plugging in cheap pieces and calling up your prospects and just kind of going through the motions for a while, they're now at kind of maybe not fully stage two but stage like one and a half where they're like okay we've now identified a small group of guys who we think are worth building on going forward or who at least have a chance to be part of the next actually good Orioles team and. It's still a small group of guys, and none of them really are pitchers, which is kind of a problem. Um, well, I mean, it, it, a lot of that depends on how you feel about John Means, who I think is kind of the closest thing this Orioles team has currently to a rotation mainstay, mm. um, depending also how you feel about Keegan Aiken. But no Dean Kramer love? No, no Dean Kramer love here. No no love for... what the What the hell is a... A Thomas oh Eshelman? He actually, I'm pretty sure he got DFA'd the other day. Um, mm. 95%. What is a Bruce Zimmerman? <laughs> I legit have never heard of that. Carson Fulmer was on this team? How did that happen? Regardless, there are some guys now, and especially too because that farm system is getting better. And that's the other big thing. Is like Even with no minor leagues last year, they still have the best catching prospect in baseball, one of the top five prospects in baseball, and Adley Rutschman. They have uh, the kid they drafted out of Arkansas um, this year, Heston Kierstad. Was it this year? I believe it was this year. Um, Yeah, he was their their first-round pick in this summer's draft and is already one of their top three prospects. They will have – what what pick are they going to have this year in terms of – it's not actually going to be a high pick because they were, again, surprisingly competent. But they're going to have, a, I believe, a top 10 pick in this year's mm. draft as well. Um, actually, they might not. There were re- a lot of bad teams I was going to say, like, I did. yeah, I don't know. I don't have that um, in front well, of me. By reverse, or at least by, let's just do by, I guess we're, we'll do win-loss percentage. They will have the one, two, three, four, five. They'll be, okay, they'll have the number six pick in this year's draft. That's okay. also pretty good. So they're going to. That's three straight years of top 10 picks, including, obviously, Rutschman, who went number one, and Kierstad, who went number three, I believe. So that farm system's only going to get better. And that really is the key for Baltimore. Like every other rebuilding team, they have identified, or at least have the plan of, 
you know, there's going to be a three to five year window when all of these guys are ready at the same time, all of the Royals, all of the Cubs, all of the Astros, you know, everybody else where that's going to be our window. That's going to be our time. And maybe during that period of time, we, you know, we, uh, what's it called? We, we add some impact free agents. We make some trades, whatever, you know, that's obviously dependent on how these guys develop. And that's the number one, most important thing. But if nothing else, like if you're an Orioles fan, 2020 was honestly, you could say it was probably a success, you know, assuming you don't care about wins and losses. And if you're an Orioles fan, then yeah, you, you don't really care about wins and losses anymore. But you know, it's, it's not that depressing a team to look at right now. It's not good. There's still a lot wrong with this team, but it's not as bad as you would think. Hell, they've, they've finished above the Red Sox. Who the hell saw that coming? Mm. Also, their farm director is named Matt Blood. That's the coolest <laughs> name in the world. Uh, Matt Blood. That's awesome. Matt Blood. Mm. Um, it is interesting because now, like I was talking to Ben Wagner, uh, radio play-by-play voice of the Toronto Blue Jays this morning about the Blue Jays, and they're very much in a very different situation than the Orioles. And it, they're facing questions where like the fan base is getting a little, little, little feisty. Because now you got you paid for Ryu, you have all this money available, um, you have all this young talent, and you're above 500. There's a it looks like the the window to being a playoff team and to being a good playoff team is appearing faster than uh, maybe Atkins and this group uh, thought was going to happen. The Orioles, I don't think even Orioles fans thought that they were going to win 25 games this year. It seems like when I was. Reading back in preparation for this week, different Orioles blogs, which, by the way, there's a lot of independent Orioles blogs that are really good. I, I did not realize this, but there are a lot of really good Baltimore Orioles writers out there and a lot of good Orioles blogs. Um, so go check those out. But um, no one saw this coming. And now it's like they want a little bit too much. And now you're starting to see some. What if, st- <laughs> what if, um, you know, Tanner Scott? relieve ace what if uh santander is an mvp candidate in a couple years like mountcastle was a really really great outfielder both offensively and defensively and you're like oh what can he be and um i don't know i think there is a lot of optimism now and i think the best case scenario because the al east is just going to continue to be crowded um next year and they're in a really tough division and i don't think the red sox are going to be as bad as they were this past season so like what is the path to them not being last in the al east for the next couple of years even if they get a little bit better and i just i don't think there really is but i do think what they've shown at the very least is competent and that they could be fun bad yeah and i think also it doesn't really matter and then i keep i keep going back on this and it, it sounds a little broken record but it's like Again, the, it, I don't think the Orioles front office cares about whether or not they finish last or fourth or third or whatever over the next two or three years. Because I think they know, for as much as fans might have their expectations raised a little bit, and for as much as um, Orioles fans might be thinking, oh, this team might be a little ahead of schedule, there's some interesting pieces, I think there's probably a realistic view in the Orioles front office of, Last year was, if not a fluke, then certainly, you know, not, this, this team is not on the cusp of really anything at the moment. Maybe some, uh, maybe some, adva- or some, some good results next year out of the minor leagues changes that. But the other thing is, like, uh, Rutschman can play in the major leagues right now. He won't, obviously, because of service time reasons. Everyone else is probably still a little far away. I'm just going to quickly pull up 
Uh, granted, it's from tw- it's obviously from before the season, but given that there was no minor leagues, not a whole lot of that has changed, and the Orioles didn't make any major trades, so you know there 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 hasn't been any there haven't been any real changes to this list. But if you look at just for example, Fangraphs list of the Orioles' top prospects, Rutschman has never gotten above A ball. Number two, Grayson Rodriguez has never gotten above A ball. Number three, and this uh, Heston Kierstad has to be added in somewhere here, but he's obviously not played a single inning of professional baseball. DL Hall, their number three guy on this list, never got has never been above advanced A ball. The only guy in there, the only two guys in their top ten who have any MLB experience right now are Mountcastle, and that amounts to currently all of how many games did he play last year? Uh, twenty three, sorry, thirty five games and one hundred and forty plate appearances, and the and other is Austin. And he was good. And the other is Austin Hayes, who, um, ah, sorry, Austin Hayes, who had all of 134 plate appearances and was pretty much league average offensively. And, like, obviously still has a lot to work on because he's still just 24 years old. And he's a first-rounder, too, say, like, I believe so. Um, I'm just going to double-check now because you asked. Uh, he was a third-round pick back in 2016. Third round, okay. But and there's still some, like there are obviously some interesting good names here. Neil Diaz, the guy, the main piece they got back from Manny Machado. Uh, obviously, as mentioned, Mountcastle, Hayes, Rutschman, Rodriguez, Hall, Kierstad. Like there are some good, interesting names here, and like some other of these guys have already made their way up. Kramer, Aiken are, are the two big ones, obviously pitching wise. Um, there are a few guys from lower down the list who are kind of like percolating their way up, but it's really unlikely that, you know, these guys are not a step away from the majors. A lot of these guys still need it probably at least another full year in the minors, if not more before they're ready to move up. Rutschman, I think is the only um, exception there because he is already defensively good enough to be a major league starter. But I can't imagine the Orioles rushing him both for developmental reasons and for financial reasons. There's, there's no reason for them to do that. And that I think is what makes it, for me, the idea that like it doesn't really matter where the Orioles finish because there's no reason for them to rush anything right now. What they're doing is waiting for these guys to be ready. All of the most important pieces that, that emerged on the 2020 Orioles are young. Mountcastle is 23. Um, Anthony Santander is 25. Austin Hayes is 24. DJ Stewart's 26. Like, you know, are all of those guys going to be part of the future? And then Means is 27. Aiken is 25. Kramer is 24. Are all these guys going to be part of the future? No. Like, you know, no, no, no team ever gets that kind of, like, results. But at the same time, you know, um, they can wait. There, there's no reason for them to really push for anything better than fourth or fifth place. Because it doesn't really matter, you know? And I can understand Orioles fans being excited that, oh, hey, this team's better now. But this is not a team that's going to do anything in free agency beyond just kind of plug some holes. And I think next year, if we do get a 162-game season, you're probably going to get something closer to, like, a 70-win team, you know? And, I, well, I guess, well, what was their winning percentage? 25 out of, 25 out of 60 is 416 times 162 is... Okay, so they were... And that's the other thing. By record, like, 25 and 35 looks better than it is because, in reality, that's a 67-win team over a full season. Mm. You know, that, that's 67 and 95. That's awful. That's an <laughs> awful team. <laughs> like it's just they were they looked better than they did because of the small sample of 60 games and their underlying peripheral suggests they were a little better than that too you know that they should have gone they should have had a 466 winning percentage which translates to 75 wins 76 if you want to round up i think the reality of the orioles next year is and i know this is orioles in review and not orioles in preview but i think the reality is 
this team probably next year is still like a, let's call it a 70-72 win team. They would have to make a lot of additions to change that, in part because their rotation is awful. You know, they still really just don't have enough pitching. And I don't think the, I don't think the Orioles front office is going to do that. I mean, I, I think they're just content to be like, okay, we've identified some guys who are going to help going forward. Next year, the, a lot of the focus is going to be developing these prospects. Whatever happens at the major league level happens. Hopefully no one gets hurt. Hopefully we see some more, some steps, continued steps forward from guys like Mountcastle and Hayes and, and Santander. But ultimately, whatever they do record-wise doesn't really matter. If anything, the Orioles probably want them to be, or the Orioles front office probably wants them to be bad yet again, because that means another top 10 draft pick. Um, and I know obviously the MLB isn't like the NBA or the NFL where you can you know, very quickly tank your way into a superstar just because of the way baseball is structured. But it doesn't hurt just to keep racking up top 10 picks. And that's something Mike Elias obviously knows because that's what the Astros did in their bleakest years when he was their uh, farm system director. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, <laughs> he's not even like, there's just weird stuff there too. Remember that report from like a few weeks back? Like, he, are we sure he's even going to be there? In like two years, oh, that, sure? that that seemed like it was a completely overblown like misinterpretation that okay. one reporter just got out. That seems like a re- I forget who the reporter was, but it seems like he just got out ahead of his skis. Mm. So, yeah, I I'm assuming that. I mean, look, the it feels like the 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 sensible thing to do is to assume that anyone who's been associated with Jeff Luno and the Astros front office is probably at least a little bit crooked. But I don't think that whatever it was Elias was accused of doing, which I think was some kind of weird um, pension situation. I, I don't even fully, I don't recall the full details. That that seemed like kind of an overblown thing. But um, I, I'm assuming Elias is on the level enough that he is going to be in charge. And that's the other thing is that, like, I know Orioles' ownership is in a little bit of flux because uh, Peter Angelos is obviously – He's obviously no longer in control of the team because he's been battling very serious health problems for the last few years. The team is more is being run by his sons. You know, I don't think they're going to sell. I mean, I, I don't know. Obviously, I don't have any inside info, but like, you know, assuming the Angelos family can, retains control of the team, I assume that they have told Elias, do what you need to do, because I assume he has sold them. And the, the way he got that job was by selling them is I can do with Baltimore what, what I did with Houston which is get you all these prospects so you can win on the cheap, you know, because that's what the, I mean, I, I, I yelled a lot about the Orioles tanking when they were at their worst and got yelled at a lot by Orioles fans and people. And understandably, because I, you know, I called them basically pond scum. And on the one hand, like I stand by the fact that like watching bad baseball is just awful, you know, and it is, it is not just, it is insulting to your fans to make them watch bad baseball, to make them watch a team that is designed to lose. And I still stand by that. I think, I mean, this is obviously pretty far afield from the Orioles 2020 in review, but like tanking, the way tanking is, is developed in baseball is one of the worst things to happen to baseball in the last like 25 years. But on the other hand, given how utterly screwed up the Orioles were and how bad that roster was by the end of the Jim du- or which Duquette was it, Dan or Jim? I don't even it's remember Dan anymore. Duquette. I can't believe the Duke got another job. That was amazing to me. Um, given how badly screwed up things were by the end of Dan Duquette's uh, tenure, I can understand why they went this route because I don't know what else they would have done. I don't really know if there was a path to the Orioles getting better that wasn't just blowing it all up. 
Because truthfully, by the time Duquette was done, there wasn't really anything left. They would have had to spend an unimaginable amount of money in free agency and swing a bunch of trades, and they still would have probably ended up with like an 80-win team. So it still sucks, but I, I can understand that like this is the path the Orioles chose because in reality they didn't have any other choice. And it actually looks like it might be starting to bear a little bit of fruit, to mix my metaphors. So if you had to group the young guys that you like the most, who are they? Who are you? Who should Orioles fans, when they look to 2021 and 2022, who want, let's not do any minors, guys, who on the major league roster right now, which of the young ones are you most intrigued and encouraged by? Uh, Mountcastle is definitely number one, which I guess mm. is kind of cheating because up until this year, he was a prospect and he was there. No, we can include him. He had a good year. Yeah. <laughs> he had a good year. And I think that's the important thing is he came up and he hit. And certainly 140 plate appearances in a weird messed up season doesn't mean that he's automatically going to be a superstar. But at the same time, like it was good to see him come up and perform well. Uh, like granted, and again, tiny, uh, obviously for all of the players we're going to talk about, tiny sample size, you know, is, is the caveat, but the underlying peripherals weren't great. Um, he struck out a lot. He didn't walk that much. He didn't really hit the ball all that hard. Yeah, he hit it decently hard. But at the same time, like, he came up, he handled major league pitching. Um, he did, I think that's the most important thing for young guys, whether or not they – it's kind of an eye test thing, but, like, how comfortable did they look? Mountcastle looked pretty comfortable. He looked like he could handle himself. He slumped a bit at the end. I mean, his last – back half of September, he went – he hit – actually, no, he hit 315, but he had, a, he had a slugging percentage under 400. So, like, the, obviously the power is still developing, but – he's definitely the guy who's now kind of the, the core of that lineup right now. And it's just waiting for Rutschman to catch up. Like, I, I think if, if you're an Orioles fan, if, you, if there's anything you worry about with Mountcastle, it's where is he going to play? Cause he is just not, he, he was drafted as a third baseman. He's not good enough to play there. He is probably a first baseman slash DH slash like in like JD Martinez level outfielder. And that's not great because it means all of his value needs to come from his bat. Like, he's actually a good runner, but, like, he's, you know, he's not a speed demon or anything. But he's really swing-happy. He doesn't really have much of a defensive profile. He really is going to have to hit. So at least you saw that happen. And there's certainly nothing that says he can't learn how to hit better and take more pitches and blah, blah, blah. But it does kind of put a ceiling on what he can do. Um, then again, like you're also talking about a team that saw pretty much the like 90th percentile of what that hitter is, and that's Chris Davis. Granted, Chris Davis is now a corpse, but those few years he had where he was just like the second coming of Ryan Howard, as kind of another guy who was pretty much an all-or-nothing hitter, like you can live with that for a bit. And Mountcastle will ideally be doing it for the Orioles on the cheap. So that's a good start for them, I think. Um. Santander is super interesting as a guy who has tons and tons of power. That's always kind of been his thing when he came out of Cuba was he was a big power hitter. The other thing is like Mountcastle, another free swinger who doesn't really draw many walks. That's the kind of thing you look at this Orioles team. There aren't really guys who are particularly good with plate discipline here. Like the team leader in walks was DJ Stewart who hit 193. So gotta be, and he struck out 38 times in 112 plate appearances. So that's, that's a really weird profile. Um, and then otherwise you have these super hacker guys like Renato Nunez, who I, um, who was, who was gone anyway. 
uh, Rio Ruiz, uh, Santander, Mount Castle, uh, Chance. Well, I guess Chance Cisco is not really part of the future, but you know Hayes only walked eight times in 134 plate appearances, which is really not good. There's like, I, I think if you're focusing on Orioles players you like, it's because they they came up and they at least showed some power. You know, Santander can hit. Like all these guys can hit in terms of like power. Um, the question is, do any of them have enough of an idea of what they're doing plate discipline wise to be more than that? Because the other thing is power. It's never been easier to get power, you know, not the power isn't valuable, but you can find it anywhere. I mean, the hell Jose Iglesias had a five fifty six slugging percentage last year. Like if that's something that can just happen, then how valuable really is it if Anthony Santander slugs five seventy five and has a three fifteen on base percentage? Like that does take things down a notch, but definitely Mount Castle. Definitely Santander. Um, Can Stewart I put this question a lot of to you about Santander? What's that? If you had to forecast the next like three years, who do you think is better? And who do you think whose power do you trust more, Santander or Teoscar Hernandez in uh, in Toronto? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I want to say Teoscar because he's like an exit velocity monster. Um. I mean, I like Santander. I like Santander a fair amount. Um, I just—they really I, had similar seasons last year. They did, and but I think, like again, you look at Santander actually has some nice underlying peripherals, especially in the expected. Excuse me, in the expected stats, and he's a better defender than you would think for you know a dude who stands six two two twenty five. He's a big boy. Um, but I, when I look at Tay Oscar, I just like again the exit velocity numbers are just stupid. He hits the ball monstrously hard all the time, all the time. Granted, he also swings and misses all the time, and he's a terrible outfielder, <laughs> just abysmal. But, man, does he hit the ball hard. And I think more than anything, like, and there's not that stuff to say Santander can't do the same thing. I mean, you know, Hernandez was 98th percentile exit velocity in 2020, and Santander was, I need to pull it back up again because I just looked, Santander was 45th. That's a, that's a big gap, but at the same time, we're talking maybe like a mile and a half an hour. You know, I, I, I'm not smart enough in StatCast to know like, whether, like what difference a mile makes in terms of predictive value, but, you know, I think, prob- I think to answer your question, probably Teoscar. It's, it's, it's not, I mean, Teoscar if only because he's, he's, uh, Santander might be a better all around player, but he actually doesn't strike out all that much for a guy who doesn't walk all that much either. And he's a better defensive player. Um, but Teoscar is a better, a, just a better power hitter. And yeah, it just depends what flavor you prefer. You know, do you prefer just a big burly power hitter that doesn't really bring anything else to the table? Or do you prefer a guy who has a good amount of power and is a little better at other stuff, but, maybe the ceiling's a little lower. And I think that's probably the thing with Santander. The ceiling is probably a little bit lower than Teoscar. Hmm. But you're right. They're, they're weirdly similar players in terms of just their overall numbers. And they're like weirdly important to these two rebuilding teams in very uh, <laughs> similar situations in this stacked uh, AL East where like, I think they're going to be important players that aren't considered like part of the core and the people that like the fans like really latch on to like Tiasker like was I think led the the Blue Jays and WRC plus um this season but um yeah that or war I can't remember which one but um 
I don't know. I think they're going to be around during this rebuild, and I think they're going to be really good and really solid during the rebuild. But then, like, if all things go well in the rebuild, um, ends up with a bunch of stars and a bunch of really good players around them, and they are no longer the the face. They, I think, there's some some Jose Abreu stuff here, where like you don't. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, I don't think either of them is as good as Jose Abreu. Well, I mean, like, I, remember I what that... Jose Abreu was a couple years ago? Like Jose Abreu, we'd even think was going to be this good at this point in his his career. But like, I'm no, saying that, that like that's... when guys move up, and when you have the Roberts and the Mancadas and the Giolitos, that like. Once you turn the corner, you kind of underappreciate the guys who were who were just there and keeping it afloat. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like Santander, I don't think is someone you who is a centerpiece, but he's a yeah. good complementary player, mm-hmm. especially because he doesn't cost really anything. So, you know, is that a guy that the Orioles should look at and go, "That's our future"? No, that's that's a that's a fool's errand. But is he a guy who can help? Absolutely, and I think. Again, what was so important about this Orioles season was finding out not just who the centerpieces are, but also who those potentially complementary pieces are, like Santander, or like DJ Stewart, um, or like, again, Means is kind of the hardest one to figure. A lot of that's because he just had injury problems this year, so I'm not really, I'm not really ready to write him off. Also, he had a pretty nice velocity spike out of nowhere, but... Um, I guess the, if you're also an Orioles fan, the thing you kind of worry about is, okay, we found a fair number of hitters we like. Were there any pitchers who showed really anything other than kind of league average functionality? And well, I think they may have found yeah. a closer. Yeah, I mean, uh, Tanner Scott was awesome. 1.31 ERA um, in 25 games. He throws really yeah, hard. I mean, and most importantly, he does really hard. most importantly, John, he is a lefty. And as a lefty, he's a lefty. Uh, uh, are you a lefty or a righty? I'm a right hander. Uh, Hmm. Shame. <laughs> Shame. I think he was third on the team in war too. I'm pretty sure. I think I t- wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, he had a he had a great season out of the bullpen, and like that's it's important too to find those guys. Like I don't. I mean, the thing with relievers is, um, you know, finding a good reliever early on in the rebuild. Like that doesn't really mean much for the future, but it does mean that in two years' time, like he has significant trade value, mm-hmm. like significant, like Edwin Diaz level. Um, if he obviously if he keeps doing what he does, but yeah, other I mean I think the bigger thing for them is did we find any starting pitching that we feel comfortable with? And the answer is qualified like ass eh, sort of. Again, means I'm willing to give him a mulligan on the season because he was hurt. He's shown good ability before. He had the nice velocity spike. I think there's still something there. It's just can he be healthy? Beyond that, um, Jorge Lopez was pretty bad. And I don't really think there's a whole lot there. He just doesn't get enough strikeouts, really, I think, to make it worth your while nowadays. Um, Asher Wojciechowski had a great 2019, had an awful 2020. I'd feel a little higher on him if he weren't already 31 years old. I, I had not realized how old Asher Wojciechowski is. I love the Big Bendy curveball, but... And still you know, somehow he, only he, one year less than uh, Alex Cobb. Somehow. Um, Alex, Alex Cobb, Cobb is 32, and I still don't understand how that's possible. I'm older than Alex Cobb, really? <laughs> wow. Okay, I didn't see that coming. I'm I'm the same age as Tommy Malone. I really didn't see that coming. Oh no. Um, oh no. I'm younger than Wade LeBlanc, though, so that feels good. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's it's also like how good do you feel about Keegan Aiken and Dean Kramer? Um, I know we were obviously joking on them, but like they both they both racked up a fair number of strikeouts, a little bit of control problems, but like 
I mean, I, I think you, if you're the Orioles and you're going to next season with the rotation of, and I, you got to figure out to a certain degree what you're going to do with someone like Cobb, whether or not you, you know, whether or not you want to kind of bother with him going forward. I mean, he's owed $15 million next year. It's the last year of his contract. I can't imagine there's any team that really wants to deal with that, but that's fine. Like he's okay. He's perfectly okay. You know, and that's, for a team that has a lot of shaky arms, he's probably there. But I mean, if you're I mean, the you Orioles, you're rotation Texas you're probably... for a rehabilitation tour so that he can get uh, he can get flipped in a year. Texas is Texas is honestly probably worse than the Orioles, though. Well, no, that's that's, that's the, all they do well. That Texas, all they do well is rehabilitate. Remember this like, starter from the mid two thousands. I don't know when you're going to get to your to your Rangers season in review, but mm. that team is quietly absolutely horrible. <laughs> Like they are quietly just a disaster, and it <laughs> to the point where John Daniels probably should not have his job anymore. Because um, their their weird attempt at kind of like a skinny rebuild just really did not pay off. Especially because they completely I don't want to say botched, but I know this is not the Orioles anymore. But like the way they the, the Mike Miner situation just really was a disaster for them, and now they're in a position where they pretty much have to trade Lance Lynn, which is. But they probably should have done it last year. Um, they should have done that last year. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, you don't ever want to put yourself in a position where you now have to trade a guy because your team is so bad that there's no point in having him anymore. Um, but I mean, if you're Another the Orioles, podcast. like, if you're the Orioles, though, I think what is most important about next year, beyond seeing what, what these young hitters do and beyond getting the the reps and the minors for for the prospects, is okay. If we start the year with a rotation of Cobb, Means, Wojciechowski, and those are the, those are kind of a penciled in top three, and then you know maybe you you know you you kind of see what Lopez, Aiken, Creamer, um, you know I don't know who else really is left beyond those guys. Maybe somewhere in that system is a guy you maybe want to push a little bit. Like I don't think you're going to see Grayson Rodriguez or DL Hall, but maybe you see maybe Michael Bauman makes a jump. Mm. Maybe. I don't know, but that, that's really kind of the only guy on their He's top, been good at the ringer, so maybe. <laughs> um, but I think that's kind of what's most important for them is like, okay, Kramer and Aiken had pretty good debuts. What can they do next year? And I think if, you know, the mo- I think the most important thing, though, is what is Means? You know, what, who is John Means? Is he the guy who can be kind of the, the top of their rotation? He's not an ace, but like, w- would on another team be a solid number two or number three? Or, or is he, you know, or, or is he not part of the future? Kramer and Aiken obviously have a lot, of, you know, years ahead of them. They're very young. Means is already 27. He's going to turn 28 next year at some point. Obviously, um, he's going to turn 28 in April, actually. And also, you know, he's contract status-wise, he is. What are we looking? At? I think pretty much everyone on this team is still pre-arb. The only guaranteed money they have on the books is Davis, Cobb, and Iglesias. That's it. What a what a fucking this Orioles <laughs> means is okay. So means is next year. Next year is his final year before arbitration. So the year after that, he's going to start getting sort of semi kind of maybe expensive or at least expensive for a bad team. Um, so you want to try to figure out. Actually, he and Tanner Scott are the same service time. That's funny. So you kind of want to start figuring out. Okay, what do we actually have here? Um, because Kramer and Aiken, you still have plenty of time to figure that out. Uh, Cobb and Wachowski are just pretty much there until they're not there anymore. I don't really imagine the team has a. Lopez felt like Lopez was a 
I, well, I forget exactly what trade he was a part of. He was part of that entire deadline teardown around Machado. He came over from the Brewers. Yeah, for Mike or for Mike Mustock. Or no, he went to the Royals for Mike Mustocks, and the Orioles plucked him off waivers last year. So he's very clearly a guy who's just kind of there, you know, fill in. Um, so it's just a matter of, okay, who fills out the rest of this rotation for the time being? You know, who is, who, not only how are Aiken and Kramer going to do, but who's the next guy up after that? And that may be something where you're waiting till 2022 to figure that out. Because your top two pitchers, like I said, Rodriguez and Hall, didn't get above A-ball last year. I can't imagine unless they absolutely destroy double-A in their first taste, are, are going to get a call to the majors. Because there's, again, no reason for the Orioles to rush anyone at this point. So realistically, rotation-wise, and then that's maybe kind of a problem for the Orioles, you're not really going to know what your future rotation looks like until 2022, probably. You know, and maybe at that point it means Aiken, Kramer, Rodriguez, and Hall. Maybe that's a pretty nice rotation, but you're not going to know for a little bit. I think they're a little. I think they're a little more clear on what the offense looks like than what the pitching looks like right now. I think the pitching development is a little. I mean, behind only insofar as like in terms of its in terms of the timeline to reaching the majors. Like, I don't think the Orioles are there yet with those guys. They have some intriguing arms, but there's just not enough of them, and there aren't enough guys really on the cusp of the majors for 2021 to be anything other than kind of just... I think the majority of the focus is Means, Kramer, and Aiken, is what what are those three guys going forward? Um, Everyone else is just kind of... You know, there's going to be a lot of bullpen shuffling, per usual, but, you know, and and I I think obviously... and, And you can add Tanner Scott to that list of, you know, is he is he an actual real shutdown reliever? Because the other thing is, like I said, he's already reaching, he's already going to be hitting arbitration eligibility after next year. You know, if you're the Orioles and you're keeping an eye on the bottom line all the time, you know, how much are you going to be willing to pay for a guy, especially because if he is the closer and he does start getting the saves, that's going to make him artificially more expensive than he would be otherwise. Maybe, maybe this is something where the Orioles, instead of giving Scott the closer role, dig up some crusty old veteran to do it instead to try to keep his costs artificially low you got to love the way baseball finances work, but like that may be something given that he already does have those two years of service time. You know, this isn't a guy they just called up. It's a guy who's been around for a little bit. Hmm. Well, ultimately, what do you think the, the Baltimore Orioles do this off season to, to put a bow on our season review for the Baltimore Orioles? What, what do you think they ultimately do? Nothing really. I mean, I don't think this is. That sounds mean, but like, it is the truth. Like, this is not a team that's going to contend next year. No, it's just not. Like, I know they were quietly, secretly content, like quietly contending for a little bit last year. But rude as it may be, I'm going to chalk more of that up to the short season and everything else than I am to this team suddenly finding a new a new talent level. That just doesn't seem likely. Yeah. So I don't think there's anything they could do in free agency or via trade. And the other thing is they don't really have veteran pieces to trade. Mm. You know, I, one guy actually we didn't mention is, is Trey Mancini, who's also kind of well. That's uh, complicated. That's a really complicated one, but obviously getting him back next year would be really really helpful because um, he is probably the best hitter on that team currently. Although I guess that's not saying terribly much. Um, I think. You look at their depth chart, you look at the areas they kind of need to address. Um, I don't know. They're all, I think they're pretty set lineup-wise. I don't really see much of anything they're going to do, especially because free agency hitter-wise. Like, obviously, they're not going to go after George Springer or JT Realmuda. That doesn't make any sense for them. But 
you know, does it make sense to add a guy like a Carlos Santana, mm. you know, to, you know, to, to replace like Rio Ruiz or to play first in place or my, well, I guess I need to give Mount Castle as many hacks as possible. Um, I, I think if anything they're going to do, it's going to be adding just like they always do, just adding some veteran arms. And, and this is this region market actually Jose Iglesias for and his 160 WRC plus to Cleveland for Francisco Lindor. Who who says no? <laughs> I mean, I do think they have been aggre- more aggressive than you would think in terms of like because they've been one of the few teams that hasn't really done a terribly huge amount of cost cutting. I mean, they picked up Iglesias' option despite the fact he's 31 years old and had a season that he's absolutely not going to have again. Uh, they claimed Yolmer Sanchez off waivers from the White Sox, and he's got five years of service on him, so he's not he's not going to come for, like, you know, the, the major league minimum. I mean, they did get rid of Renato Nunez, but Renato Nunez also is not very good, and they have way too many of those kind of corner infield DH guys that they, they need to start trimming trimming branches off that particular tree is, is probably the smart way to go, and Nunez is a guy who just I don't really see what upside there is beyond what he did last year, and what he did last year was – above league average offense, but almost entirely built off power. He doesn't really bring anything else to the table. Um, actually, it's kind of surprising that that Nunez survived and, and Ruiz didn't because they're basically the same guy. Um, but I guess I, Ruiz, I guess, at least has the, the benefit that he can play third base and, and Nunez is more of a first base DH type. So regardless, I, I think what you're more likely to see with the Orioles this offseason is is what they what they usually do, which is kind of these bottom of the barrel free agent pitchers, the kind of over thirty veterans who are nobody really wants anymore, but who are still capable of giving you like a hundred to hundred and fifty okay innings. You know, I mean that's what they did last year. They got Tommy Malone, they got Wade LeBlanc, they got uh uh actually I think those are really kind of the only two guys they really bothered with. But Did I dream um, it or was Tommy Malone on the Braves this year? You, it was more of a nightmare than a dream, I think. Mm. <laughs> but I think that that is almost certainly going to be what they do because that the rotation oh my God, is the where Baltimore they Orioles are signing Cole Hamels. Nah, he's too he's 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 honestly probably too expensive for them. Is he? He deserves no. Actually, he should owe money. My opinion: <laughs> this civil, just, Cole Hamels should be in the red. He should actually owe money this season. How does this turn into an or into a Braves podcast yet again? <laughs> um, no, but just like looking at like if you look at the starters available, like again, and and relief pitchers too because they're going to need relievers. But like, there's a lot of really Orioles names on this list: Fred Anderson, Chase Anderson, Homer Bailey, Trevor Cahill, Tyler Chatwood, Mike Fires, Mike Fulton Avitz to get it back to the Braves, uh, Gio Gonzalez. Jay uh, Hap's too old. Um, there's Wade LeBlanc again. Mike Leake. Mike Leake has a really powerful Orioles energy. Um, <laughs> he does. I feel like he was drafted you know, maybe, by the Orioles in the first round in 2003 and then bounced around for a while. Uh, Martin Perez would make a lot of sense for the Orioles mm. coming off a pretty, actually a pretty good year with Boston. Uh, Jose Quintana. Like there are a lot of like, of those oh, kind of like Quintana. He, that's the most, I mean, th- that Quintana might be the most Baltimore Orioles pitching signing in 2021 that like there are a lot eh. of there are a lot of semi high up not really high upside but there are a lot of veteran arms that they can just use to fill out that rotation because they can't really go into next year you know with Aiken and Kramer and whoever else just like penciled in that's just not that's just not gonna work similarly like relief pitcher wise like any any of the likes of like Pedro Baez or Steve Ciszek or you know 
uh, Shane Green or Greg Holland or, you know, just what they're going to be doing in free agency, I imagine more than anything else, is just finding guys who can plug roster spots in the rotation and bullpen because that's where they need the most help right now. But it obviously doesn't make sense for them to go after, like, Trevor Bauer, you know, or, wow, things really thin out after Trevor Bauer. Holy hell. Um, That's not good. And nor do I think they're going to be in for guys like John Lester or Corey Kluber or, or Rich Hill because those are guys who are, one, going to want to go to contenders because they're toward the end of their careers and they want to win. And, two, what the, the, the most upside you can imagine for the Orioles there is that those guys are good for half a season and then they get flipped at the deadline for prospects. Mm. And I think they would have to overpay to get one of those guys anyway. And in reality, like you can just sign like a Mike Fulton Abitz. You can basically, I think what the Orioles are probably going to do is kind of similar to what the giants have been doing. You target someone like a Kevin Gaussman or a Drew Smiley and you bank on, you know, maybe this guy is terrible, but if he's good, either A, we sign him long-term, and then he's kind of a, a useful piece to, to help, you know, paper over those holes until those guys like Rodriguez and Hall are ready, or B, you get to flip him at the deadline for, for a better prospect than you would have gotten otherwise. And, you know, I don't know how many of those guys are actually left in free agency at this point. Like, really, Smiley was kind of the best of that, of that bunch, and the Braves already got him. But... I don't know, maybe like a Matt Shoemaker, maybe, maybe someone like Taiwan Walker, if he finds the market not to his favor, maybe someone like Garrett Richards, you know, there are some names there where I think, you know, if we come around to July and there's a contender with a hole in the rotation and a guy like Richards or Walker or, or Quintana or whoever else is having a pretty good season in Baltimore, they can flip him pretty easy because that's the whole point for them right now. You know, you, you pick up these veterans to paper over holes and to flip them for prospects when you get the chance. Because, again, the Orioles aren't going to be contenders in 2020, or 2021, rather. You know, there's no real reason for them to be going after the, the top tier of free agents. They just need guys who are going to show up, be professional, help the young guys learn, do their jobs, and then go. Ideally for under, uh, for under $10 million a year. All right. Well, we will leave it there, John. Who would you like to, to talk about next week? Who, who in the AL East? You have to pick an AL East team. We're going to go that way and move over. Okay, so you've already talked about the Blue Jays. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that leaves, obviously, the Red Sox, the, the Yankees, and the Rays. Yes. I don't know that I can talk about the Red Sox currently without suffering some kind of minor stroke. Mm, okay. Cross them off for a, for a so, little bit. I think it's, it's going to be either one of the Yankees or the Rays. I think the Yankees are more interesting, obviously, in the Rays at this point because the Rays have obviously made it clear that they're not really going to do much of anything this offseason. Well, that and their twenty twenty like review, their twenty twenty in review is just they were really good, <laughs> but they were really good in a way that was like kind of predictable because they're the Rays. Whereas the Yankees, I think, I mean, the Yankees are just the most interesting team to talk about always. But you know, they don't have a big question facing them this offseason like they did last, which was like, are they going to sign Garrett Cole? Yes or super yes, but. You know, their their rotation is thin now. You know, they're losing they lost three starters from that rotation. They're they might lose DJ LeMahieu, although I, I don't really see that coming. I don't think anyone has any clue what to do with Gary Sanchez at this point. There are a lot of like I, I let's let's go with the Yankees. Let's let's just tackle that big ass beast, you know? Okay. Just because I think too I think the other important thing with the Yankees is we're now going on three straight years, four straight years really, of 
it, it, maybe it's not fair to say, especially given how everything played out last season, but we're kind of going on four straight years of disappointment. This is a team that was probably supposed to win a World Series by now with the roster they have. And I think that was the in, that, I think that was the dream and the goal last year was this is a World Series winning team, and instead they got bounced by the Rays. But which is not to say I don't think anyone's job is in danger or anything, but I do think it's interesting that you know we, we are at this point where and maybe that's kind of the organizing question is when you look at the 2020 Yankees in review, it's like does this team still have that kind of like top tier contender feel? My gut answer is yes because they still have a stupid amount of really good players and really good prospects, but they definitely have not gotten the final season results that I think everyone expected them to get at this point. Part of that is obviously running into to Houston and, and Boston when they were at their apex and also kind of sort of cheating, but you know that's that's just how the cookie crumbles. So yeah, let's let's talk about the Yankees. Let's 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 do some Yankees talk. All right, Yankees, it is John. Thank you as always, my friend. And uh, my pleasure. Great work, and we will we will talk soon. All right. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.